Howdy, this is Jim Rutt, and this is The Jim Rutt Show. Listeners have asked us to provide pointers to some of the resources we talk about on the show. We now have links to books and articles referenced in recent podcasts that are available on our website. We also offer full transcripts. Go to jimrutshow.com. That's jimrutshow.com. Today's guest is Hansi Freinach, coming back for a third appearance. Hansi was on twice before when we talked about his two very interesting books, The Listening Society and Nordic Ideology. We talked mostly about The Listening Society in EP36 and Nordic Ideology in EP53. If you want to go deeper on some of the topics that we talk about today, which will be broader, but not as deep as those earlier podcasts, I recommend that you take a look at those podcasts. And what we're going to do today is we're going to explore both metamodernism and particularly Hanzi's variety, which he calls political metamodernism. We're going to sometimes shorten that to metamodernism here in our discussion. And Game B, a perhaps similar but different way of thinking about the evolution from where we are to where we're going. For people that want to learn more about metamodernism, a good place to look is metamoderna.org. In terms of Game B, there's a very active Game B group on Facebook, plus 20 satellite groups on specific Game B topics. So just search Facebook for Game B, all one word. And there's also a very comprehensive wiki gamebee.wiki. So, welcome, Hansi. Good to have you here again. Um, the pleasure is on my side. It's good to be back and good to be talking to you again, Jim. Yeah, we had some wonderful conversations. I look forward to taking it to the next level. As I was preparing for this podcast, I went through Hansi's books again and looked for quotes that, in some sense, overlapped the political metamodern perspective and the Game B perspective. And I found, I think, a good one from, I believe it's the Listening Society. We live essentially in a retarded world. Our value systems do not correspond to the society we live in. Our ways of seeing, sensing, feeling, acting, and understanding do not correspond to the very society that we ourselves have created. This glitch is lethal. This is the issue of our age, to develop the political psychology of the world population. Unfortunately, stimulating such political psychological development is an enormously tricky matter. And that's from Hansi's book. And I would say from the Game B perspective, our framing tends to be less literary and less elegant, perhaps. For instance, we say that the challenge is four parts. As humans, having gone through our levels of development, which we'll talk about later, we reached a point where our power exceeds our wisdom. And in particular, there are four challenges, which we can think of as the meta-crisis. One is that our greed, weapons, and thirst for power have made us capable of destroying ourselves by force, right? We could literally probably don't kill life on Earth, probably don't even kill off humans, but we can certainly knock down advanced civilization. And not only can we do it by intent, our technology has also made us capable of destroying ourselves by accident. For instance, letting loose nanotechnologies or engineered viruses that produce some of the effects that we read in our dystopian novels. And, you know, one that's become much more to the forefront the last 10 years 
is our pollutants and disregard for the fragility of nature made us capable of destroying our environment, which again could lead to the collapse of advanced civilization. And the newest one, and this one is really disturbing, is this person who helped invent the internet, and some of the communications platforms and such that exist, and not what we intended, I can tell you. But nonetheless, I think it's fair to say our irresponsible use of communications have made us capable of destroying our ability to understand. And if you think about the first three challenges, if our modern communications platforms and the evolution of them have made us incapable of sense-making and decision-making so as to address the first three, we're completely fucked. <laughs> to give a little bit of flavor about political metamodernism, get back on Hansi's point of view, it proposes that there's four dimensions to think about how people need to change and society needs to change. Hansi do a much better job on this than I, but he asked me to do a very brief introduction. And those are hierarchical complexity, which is essentially how richly does one think and, and with what power. Code, which you can think of as culture or our social operating system. Our state, which is what is the typical state of mind that our citizens are in? Are we happy? Are we depressed? Are we agitated? Are we in anxiety as our more or less typical state? And then depth. I think this is a really interesting one. We'll talk about its touch points to game B in a few minutes, which is what is the range of state that one has had through one's life? So with that, I'm going to turn it back over to Hansi. Maybe he can say a little bit more about political metamodernism. Well, yes, thank you very much. So, well, starting with the term meta-modern, um, it has to do with, uh, well, we live in a late modern society uh, that is still based around all the key insights of the Enlightenment, really. And this includes actually mechanisms such as liberal democracy, where we cast votes to substantiate truth claims, really, about the political realities and social realities and suggestions that are made, really. So we have this intersubjectivity at the heart of what we do, which is fundamentally the scientific method applied to different fields of life. The same goes really for the capitalist market, uh, where we, of course, unevenly have the access to capital to uh, to substantiate which products should be created on the market. But nevertheless, you have a broad public of people spending money and then companies uh, which evolve and produce the products that people want or that people verify with their with their wallets, so, uh, so to speak. And then, of course, this central position of science in society and science being a kind of in a way, even a new religion for us, um, that we have a sense that there is a real reality out there, an objective reality. And then this, this is modern society, and today we're in a late stage of that modern society. And the four uh, challenges you, you brought up are, are similar to the ones that I like to bring up. I emphasize the psychological side a bit more. So saying that, well, we have, um, I may have said this on an earlier episode, but uh, that we have the, the sustainability 
issue that modern society is not going to be sustainable in the long run. And that's visible on so many levels. We live in all of these spiraling growth mechanisms uh, and uh, unlimited growth on a limited planet and uh, all of these exponential growths of both output, economic and uh, technological output. And then, of course, uh, of the ecological footprint of that. And then, then we have um, excessive inequalities, really, that there are inequalities that cannot be justified in the world today, uh, which have to do with the distribution of resources, but also the distribution of symbolic goods, such as uh, health, uh, happiness, um, opportunities in life, and so on. And a third one, the most subtle one, but perhaps the most pervasive one, is alienation, or what Marx called alienation, but When I use the term, I actually have in mind all of the different existential issues uh, and uh, the bewilderment that we feel towards this late modern life that is coming apart at the seams, that it's difficult to find meaning. And uh, John Verveke, for instance, uh, another, I I guess you could say, metamodernist thinker, uh, not sure he self-describes as such, he even terms this a meaning crisis. And some people go ahead and say there is a meta crisis of late modernity, that all of these things are interconnected. And then people are looking uh, for this golden thread, for this pathway away from this crisis or through this crisis into a new, more stable equilibrium, something you can believe in, something uh, that would be utopian or protopian by today's standards. Uh, protopian meaning that you actually can believe in the progress narrative, that you can actually believe in that, hey, I can see that this society is going to get better, not that it's going to grow and then grow and then the cracks are going to grow and then things are going to fall apart at the seams. So if you ask me what the meta crisis really, really is, at the deepest level or at the most basic level, I believe we have actually a sense-making crisis. I believe that what's broken in the world is our shared um, reality checking, our shared um, meaning-making communication and verification of claims and realities. So we end up at a terrible distance from one another. And this is, of course, visible in uh, political uh, polarization. It's also uh, visible in uh, post-truth society of all, uh, in all its forms and guises. And also just the fact that we seem to not be able to even get down to the basics of what's real. And uh, I'd like to deepen this topic a little bit more, but um, particularly what I see is that we have collectively started, and I'm not the first to claim this. There were similar uh, terms used by Deleuze, for instance, uh, the the French uh, postmodern theorist or late postmodern theorist that we're resembling a schizophrenic. Collectively, we're starting to resemble a schizophrenic mind. Um, We're losing grip of reality, and we're really in this atlas-shrugged position, but not in a heroic way, but in a very, well, in a clearly anti-heroic or misadventure kind of way. 
So uh, I, yeah, I, I think if we're, we're looking for the deepest solutions, we should go back to issues of knowledge, issues of reality, issues of ontology, issues of communication, issues of philosophy of science, issues of knowledge processes and knowledge creation and claim verification. And somewhere there, I see the, the most central issue to be resolved, because if we can't even communicate about reality, we can't even, um, if we're at odds about the very basics of what's real and what the human condition is and where we're going, then we're highly unlikely to resolve the profound challenges that we face. Yeah, I, th I would say that this is where Game B and political metamodernism are really on the same page. The concept of sense-making is a core idea that we both share. In fact, one of the Game B folks, Daniel Schmachtenberger, had some incredibly eloquent things to say about not only the crisis of sense-making, but how we can learn to, to do better with our sense-making, both individually and, as he'll make the point very importantly, collectively. And I would point people who want to get most of Daniel's thinking in one reasonably palatable piece. There's a video on rebel wisdom called Sense-Making Crisis with Daniel Schmachtenberger, number one. There's four of them, but the first one is the one that you really want to listen to. Extremely interesting. And as Hansi says, if we can't figure out how to make sense of our world and have an agreement, at least on the facts, if not on what to do, that our chances of meeting the four challenges and other challenges are very small. It's interesting, he also met John Berbeke, who I would say is at least Game B adjacent as well as postmodern adjacent. Another one of our Game B thinkers, Jordan Hall, has a strong relationship with John Berbeke and they've appeared together on videos, et cetera. And so while personally, those who listen to the show know I'm a little skeptical of high metaphysics, I'm less convinced there's a big M meaning crisis, but I am definitely convinced there's a small M meaning crisis and that the meanings that we're making are not good for either the ongoing long-term existence of our society or for our well-being, right? You talk about this alienation. And one of the ideas I have found very useful lately has been another one of these French thinkers, Baudrillard, and his idea of the simulation the levels of simulation in which society has found itself in. And, you know, one of the things that afflicts, I would argue, many, many people in the West, in the United States in particular, but also everywhere you think of the West, is that we are in many cases living completely away from actual life, the physical realities. And we think that things like social media is reality or what's on TV, etc., we don't know how to change the oil on our cars anymore. We don't have a garden anymore. In a pinch, we, we wouldn't even know how to kill a deer and butcher it, right? And I will raise my hand and say, I can do all three of those things, goddammit. And people that live deeply in the simulation strike me as those who are most likely to feel alienated and most likely in a real sense to not feel that this strange society we live in is for them at all.
Yes. So there, there is a certain disconnect from from reality um, in in its more visceral form, and there are many movements that try to reintegrate this. Of course, there you have prepper movements, you have uh, all kinds of new survivalism that shows up. You have uh, all sorts of workshops where you dance and prance around and get in touch with your masculinity, um, all of which can be good things. Um, so I I do I do see that people are responding to these things. Uh, however, uh, what, what I feel is being missed out on is the overall big goal to recreate governance in a way that communication and truth verification and democracy and our institutions of, uh, of uh, decision-making and legitimization of those decisions, um, also checking with the facts and so on, that they're really breaking down. And of course, social media is a very big part of it and uh, this disconnect from, from everyday reality. And here I'd like to um, actually zoom in on what I meant a little bit with the schizophrenia part. So uh, unfortunately, in my own family, there has been history of schizophrenia, etc. And I had an old uncle, um, a distant uncle, when I grew up, and he would write these letters after he had uh, his schizophrenia had developed. And these letters would touch on three topics that would be intermixed or four topics. So uh, they, they would all be conspiracy theories. And then in those conspiracy theories, you would find certain themes that showed up very strongly. Uh, one was pedophilia and conspiracy theories with pedophilia and cabals and stuff like that. Another thing was UFOs and aliens. And another thing was magical thinking mixed up with astrology. And another thing was a um, preoccupation with Nazis. In his case, uh, Nazis were the bad guys. But if you do take a look at the web today, which is this disconnected simulacra galore, really, where people travel into farther and farther reaches of combining ideas and uh, uh, disconnecting really from the lives that we do live, what do you see? Well, there is the QAnon, uh, a huge conspiracy theory, which is about pedophiles. The New York Times on page 17, they publish an article about UFOs as if it's a real thing. Not on the first page. It's not like they're saying, by the way, uh, we find, or actually they are saying on page 17, by the way, UFOs are probably real. And nobody really reacts. And th this is growing. Uh, so the many scholars that I respect spent years studying ufology. And they, they work to make this a more respectable uh, endeavor, and which is highly problematic, we're, that we're kind of losing. We're not, we, we're not even on the same page which kind of reality we're talking about. And inner and outer reality, objective reality and subjective reality are getting mixed up here because people uh, will object. You cannot understand my view of UFOs unless you've taken enough DMT, which is also a problematic statement. But very intelligent, very high up 
uh, high up in society, very powerful folks are being influenced by these ideas and taking them seriously. Together with that, you have all sorts of magical thinking. They come in many versions. Uh, they can be therapy forms where you uh, uh, change the energies of a certain kind of uh, family constellation system or, uh, or healing of different sorts. And of course, uh, healing can sometimes work, but for probably for other reasons than energies actually floating around. You have people, uh, intelligent people, scholars using uh, uh, the secret style manifestations, basically that you think about getting rich and then you uh, hope that will manifest in your life. You have uh, increasing prevalence of astrology uh, being used therapeutically, but also taking much, much too literally. And you have fascists showing up on um, different forms and guises. They have showed up in metamodernist settings, uh, often with uh, explicit sneaky plans to infiltrate uh, the, uh, the brand and make it about uh, some kind of uh, new right, um, new far right, proprietarianism and uh, meta right and all the rest of it. But basically, if you scratch the surface, these are Nazis uh, and they claim to be metamodernists. And you've had a similar problem, I know, in the game B groups. Uh, so actually, all of these themes that I recognize from my childhood as schizophrenic uh, symptoms are showing up through the social media in our own wider community of progressive thinkers who want to make a dent in this in this world for something positive. Often intelligent people, often sensitive people, often highly connected, highly talented, highly creative people. And well, what does this tell us? Well, we're, we're losing, we're losing it. Um, we're losing grip of reality collectively. We're if we can't even, if we can't sit down and talk about the future of governance without having to spend an hour discussing exopolitics, meaning the politics of aliens vis-a-vis -vis humans, and you have to spend a lot of time uh, or an, an effort just to debunk that stuff, and they will uh, always link you to an infinity of YouTube clips, I mean, how on earth are we going to address climate change or um, the lack of global governance in, in a haywire market society, right? So I'd like to like really zoom in on that topic and let's try and be creative and find solutions for that. Because I think it's in this, it's in the sociology of knowledge, it's in the processes of social media, but also of governance and also of communication here. Now I'd add also, and I believe this would be the game B response to that, is community, real community. And, you know, you didn't even mention the two most absurd schizophrenia. QAnon's up there, so let's put QAnon in the, in the nutbag hall of fame. But we're also seeing a plague of flat earthers and anti-vaxxers, right? Another group I helped found called Rally Point Alpha, which is focused on sense making. Find that on Facebook, Rally Point Alpha, three words. We don't have too many rules there, but one of them is no fucking anti-vaxxers, right? Because as you say, 
They can go on for days pointing you to all kinds of crazy shit on the internet, and they'll derail any conversation that comes anywhere close to public health with their absurd anti-vaxxer stuff. And yet the reality is only 100 Americans have died from the side effects of vaccines since 1950. And God knows how many millions of lives have been saved. So by, you know, even the most cursory examination, anti-vaxxerism is just plain fucking nuts. And yet, as you say, some very intelligent people have absorbed it. So let's talk about, you know, in terms of theory and practice, what is this all about? And I think actually your political metamodern framework is helpful here. We can talk about hierarchical complexity, which, in, you know, kind of shorthand, you can say, how smart is somebody? And unfortunately, our world's gotten too complicated for the hierarchical complexity of most people's brains. I mean, I see it all the time, right? You know, the second is the code, you know, the social operating system that we are currently operating, which the Game B analysis is, has been hijacked by the short-term money-on-money return signal. And this is where Daniel Schmachtenberger does a great job. He will say that when you're consuming information, the first question you should ask yourself is whose economic benefit was this information created for or in response to? For instance, one of the problems of science in the sociology of science, not in the engine of science. And that's a distinction I think is very important. I'm a strong believer that the engine of science is robust and powerful, but the sociology of science has serious issues that need to be addressed is the funding sources for science, which drive the agenda for science and how careers are made in science, you know, are, are driven by people who have vested interests, pharmaceutical companies, the defense complex, the intelligence agencies, etc. So when you read a paper, a scientific paper even, go read the acknowledgement section and see who funded this damn thing. And so our core code, our operating system, as we'd say in, in Game B, or our deep code, has some deep flaws in it that produce strong economic incentives to skew the information that we're getting, right? And then, of course, our state, one of your ones in the Game B formulation, we point out that learned helplessness and anxiety about life are both side products of our current code, right? You know, United States is worse than Europe in this. In the United States, if you're not careful, you could actually end up homeless, right? That is not good. And so it seems to me that the attack on this problem of sense making is unfortunately, you know, a pretty hard one. There is no magic silver bullet. You know, Daniel Schmachtenberger lays out some, some things we can do, but it's not easy. And I would suggest that the hierarchical complexity problem actually speaks to at least a hint in the direction we can go, which is, you know, even fairly smart guys like ourselves have a hard time keeping up and parsing what's going on. I know I do. I don't know about you. I've done a lot. I've read a lot. I think a lot. But man, it's really, really hard to make sense of the world by myself. So a game B concept is collective sense making is absolutely indispensable. And our own view is it should be bottom up. It should not be top down. You should find other people who think sort of like we do, though with some variance. And as a group, think through the issues of the day. I'm in a group that meets weekly, for instance, to talk about the short-term meta-crisis around the U.S. elections and and then subsequently the seeming brink of civil war that we're at. These are five exceedingly interesting, smart, and varied people. And I think the five of us together are making way greater sense of the world than any of us would make by ourselves. I'm already seeing us 
all change our point of views from this collective sense-making opportunity. And I would say less powerfully, but still relatively powerfully, are online forms dedicated to sense-making like Rally Point Alpha and plenty of other ones out there. So that's at least a short riff on this phenomenon, that it's you know fundamentally hard because our world is more complex than our brains can be, and that the, the code or the deep code of our social operating system provides gigantic incentives for bad faith discourse, not even if it's knowingly bad faith discourse, but it's all steered by the money on money return engine. So, so there, there are a couple of threads there that are interesting to pick up. Um, I, let's start with the money on money. Um, well, so we do have the open markets as a way of voting with our money, what makes sense to create, right? But as uh, critics of, uh, of capitalism have long uh, held and the postmodernist and postmodern scholars and French theorists and among any, many others and uh, postcolonial theorists and have pointed out is that our money system is not a very reliable truth system because you can always manipulate what people want. Um, and you can manipulate us through many, many mechanisms that we're not consciously aware of. So you have all, I mean, just what a huge psychological global experiment it is that we're funneling this enormous amount of money into advertisement and uh, affecting our own brains in ways and, and hijacking our attentions. So that somehow needs to be addressed on a... Uh, transnational political level. We want to increase the truth claims of our emotions that we get, we uh, are equipped, all of us, with emotional uh, predictions about what will make us happy and fulfilled and healthy and so on through all of this advertisement that we're picking up, whether or not we do it consciously. And then we spend our money and efforts and, and life project and trajectories and goals according to those assumptions. But those assumptions are often fairly poor. So that's an important part in that we're, we're being fed false information. A second part that I'd like to, a second thread I'd like to pick up on what you said is, well, let's look at flat earth and let's look at hierarchical complexity. So flat earth uh, society is basically a lot of people who have the intuition that the world is flat, which is the intuitive belief. Before people knew that we live on a globe um, sometime uh, in antiquity, at least the, the scholars knew by uh, Pythagoras' time or something, people would assume that the earth was flat. And if you look at it in old cosmologies, Viking cosmology, there is a big tree holding it, holding up a disk and so on. And that's kind of the lower complexity thinking. And we all rely on a sense-making process on a community bigger than ourselves to create our reality because it was just up to me and I was just walking around by myself in my garden and had to figure stuff out. I wouldn't get far at all, just like you said. So it's not just, a, of course, a group of, uh, of my friends. It's the wider community, education, science, media, and all the rest of it, right? So 
what used to be in uh, modernity's earlier phases a fairly coherent uh, such bond between individual people and the sense-making community and reality verification mechanism, it has been severed by the internet because we now can find these bubbles and then we can verify claims and intuitions um, and conspiracy theories, uh, they pop up uh, with increasing rapidity and absurdity. Uh, the same thing with, of course, flat earth, that people have this intuition and then they uh, they can verify one another and say, let's be critical. And they might have difficulties verifying the stuff that uh, uh, the claims of actual science and uh, actual education Within the flat earth community, they will say again, again, please think for yourself. And the answer often is not to think for yourself. The answer is to have a reliable enough community to think for you because, hey, we won't get very far if we try to think for ourselves, even on this topic. And this actually connects beautifully to the issue of democracy. So political metamodernism is the opposite pole of populism. So populism is the lowest common denominator that, well, in European countries, a lot of people are irritated by the presence of Arabs who integrate poorly into their communities. And a lot of people can feel this relatively viscerally in their lives and they can see it out on the street. And well, they have events and, and, uh, and uh, stories about this. So this is an easy topic for populism, whereas climate change, you have to think abstractly, you have to think long term, you're not noticing anything particular here and now, and you have to trust complicated predictions, which are um, admittedly uh, tentative, and you have to relate that to your own life and to the politics of your country and to uh, the market mechanisms and to technology and the use thereof. So that's a much, much more complex issue and it requires co-development and it requires good knowledge processes, good sense-making processes and good translation of those sense-making processes into everyday lives and communities. And that's what we're not very good at as society today. So political metamodernism will never be popular. It's not going to be like socialism, like a mass movement. Uh, and there won't be metamodernist countries or societies which are nominally metamodernist. It's rather this funnel towards higher complexity where we build upon each other like the scientific community Rather, and this goes, of course, also for our existential development, for our religious beliefs and so on, rather than falling back on the lowest common denominators, uh, which our intuitions often lead us towards, but our intuitions fail us because the world isn't intuitive. Uh, humans weren't invented for this kind of complex world, and this complex world doesn't just came into being or just happens to be there. And hey, we humans are like Heidegger said, cast into it. So the main challenge, I think, is to somehow lift this improvement of the quality of knowledge making in, in, to make it 
into one of the key political issues of our societies that governments around the world should ally and think, okay, how can we make our politics much, much more empirical? How can we make our publics, our populations, much more critically minded? How can we make communications? Uh, how can we arm or, or equip people with uh, the tools to evaluate truth claims, to evaluate uh, reference systems out there in the world? I'd like to say more about reference systems, but I'll let you in, Jim. Yeah, that was certainly good. And certainly that would be one path forward. And I would say that's a path that we all need to be working on. And certainly people in the Game B space are working on encouraging these kinds of things. But, you know, it's not clear to me that faced with the fundamental dynamics that we have, that this can be accomplished top down. I mean, look at the current American political mess we have. We have essentially anti-liberalism of the left and the right, and then we have an ever-shrinking number of sensible people in the middle. And you then add to that the current state of our communications infrastructure, and we have insanity propagating itself day by day, where there, we now have a shooting on the left and a shooting on the right, and God knows where that will escalate to. So we're not putting all of our eggs in that one basket of top-down political change. We do think eventually that has to happen. But Game B is more and more being focused on a day-to-day -day basis on localism, on building communities on the ground and on the nets that can bootstrap and, you know, and essentially demonstrate that there's a better way. And I think one of the problems with our earlier thinking and maybe the problem with political metamodernism is that it is more tell than show. And so we believe that we have to put some effort into showing that that organizing in certain ways makes better sense making, provides a higher quality of life, a higher state, as you would say, and that at least in a coherent group, we get the effect of hierarchical complexity, even if it isn't in one person, but rather is in a group process. And in fact, the four pillars of Game B, at least in my version of it, is that it should start from the bottom and should be self-organizing, a skill we need to get better at. We should use these networks. And it's interesting that while on one hand, social media is destroying the mass ability to make sense. It's also providing islands of coherence, right? The Facebook Game B group, the Facebook Rally Point Alpha group, and the hundreds of others, or not the others, where people are using the private networking capabilities. Both those groups, by the way, have thousands of members where these tools can be used constructively, even if the public versions of them are destructive. The third pillar of Game B is decentralized. And I think this is perhaps one of the bigger differences between Game B and political metamodernism is, you know, we're pretty strongly believers in subsidiarity, that problems should be dealt with at the lowest possible level that's congruent with their effective solution. And then finally, and I think we'd agree on this one, is metastable. <laughs> that society has got to not exceed its limits and operate in a way that's stable for hundreds of years. And you say metastable, because no one formulation is going to be stable for hundreds of years in the current world. It's going to have to adapt and fly, but be recognizable itself. Yeah, so uh, there, there are, again, uh, several threads I could pick up. Let's start, actually, with the, the top-down, bottom-up thing. I'm not comfortable exactly with being framed, framed as a top-down proponent. Rather, I think 
as I argue in Nordic ideology, I think uh, the, the solutions are going to be top down, bottom up, bottom up, top down. Meaning that because institutions have greater explanatory power than pretty much anything else in social reality, institutions being habits of many people which repeat themselves with regularity. So um, going to church can be an institution, schools are an institution, forms of governance are institutions. And if you compare countries which are highly functional, even though they're not sustainable in the long run, and uh, economies like, I don't know, uh, South Sudan or something, uh, where they're are poor institutions. Um, the the main difference between the quality of people's lives in these destitute places and uh, highly ordered and organized places like Denmark, for instance, is that in one place the institutions are in place and that creates order and thus freedom um, that people can expect what what happens and they can plan long term and they can coordinate their actions across more space and time, including uh, the actions of their own lives, and thus uh, create better growth trajectories for themselves and their families and their communities. So we are empowered to create bottom-up solutions by the social context we are in. And those co- social contexts are always subject to the economic structures, the uh, the sociological structures and the political structures of governance uh, within which we, uh, we act. So uh, I do believe that political metamodernism has to start from the bottom in the sense that it has to begin with people such as ourselves um, who are not already enmeshed in the current system and the many interests and games that, and, 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 uh, and frameworks and limitations that are in that. And we can rethink things a little bit more freely at a distance. Nevertheless, we then have to go in and try to change the institutions. And that's where the top-down issues come in. And those top-down issues then create scalable versions of um, human growth at a wider level. So what I imagine happening next in, in the world is for interesting regions, they can be metropolitan regions, they can be geographical regions, they can be uh, uh, innovation clusters, they can be communities around the world, they can be web-driven networks. But they need to start to seriously recreate the life conditions of everyday life in in uh, certain key areas. Maybe a progressive city like Berlin, for instance. That what happens if uh, if Berlin gets a progressive uh, game B oriented or metamodernism-oriented uh, mayor uh, with, uh, with a wide alliance of uh, intelligent people and advisors from around the world, and then reinvents and deepens the structures of governance, deepens democracy, deepens how uh, people can participate in governance, um, creating more sovereignty, a more sense of responsibility, more sense of ownership, more intelligent decisions 
which work with higher collective intelligence and also gain higher legitimacy. And at the same time, using that higher democratic legitimacy to improve the growth processes present in, for instance, education, so that kids learn to meditate and uh, learn to be better perspective takers, um, pick up a more systemic view of reality and society, uh, learn to think more uh, cross-disciplinarily, uh, connect to uh, issues like big history and uh, and the evolution of, uh, of mankind and technology and nature itself. The, the regions that are first movers in that uh, in that development in the meta modern revolution of culture, as it were, are going to create more interesting culture and symbols and solutions solutions which manage complexity and th- thus can sell well on the market. So they will be competitive on the world market and will be able to reinvest a lot of money into that deeper welfare, into that listening society. And that requires at least some top-down. The top-down version, though, is one that reaches deeper into the grassroots and reaches deeper into the human soul and coordinates more subtle levels of and subtle layers of what it means to be a human being so that we are coordinated on a deeper emotional level that we have higher trust for each other, for instance, that we are uh, sexually perhaps more liberated and expressed, that we uh, are have lesser and fewer insecurities, that we are better um, equipped to communicate around difficult and complicated and complex topics so that we can grasp more abstract goals and organize ourselves around those more abstract and long-term goals. So I I really see it as a both and. I'd like to stop there. I still have have an issue uh, to bring up on uh, this uh, verification mechanism and, and verifying truths back and forth and so on and how this tends to break down. Uh, and I'd, I'd like to make that a goal of both political metamodernism and game B. And I do think we should be looking for pressure points in the world system where these things are actualizable. Yeah, let's get back to that. But let me react a little bit to the idea of, let's say, a metamodern Berlin. That would be interesting if it could actually be pulled off. But unfortunately, you know, our modern social operating systems have a zillion veto points. You know, Berlin is not sovereign. Berlin lives within one of the German states, Brandenburg, I believe it is. Yeah. And Brandenburg has its own authority. And then Brandenburg lives in a German federation. And the German federation lives in the EU. And so the constraints on what the metamodern mayor of Berlin could actually do strike me as perhaps disappointing. Our Game B approach at this point, though there are certainly people working on political ideas at a higher level, for instance, Brett Weinstein's Unity 2020 idea of running an independent candidate for president of the United States is at least nominally a Game B idea. I think many of us are now focused on a much smaller scale to prove the principle, which the label we use for that is proto-B. And literally, a proto-B probably starts out with a cluster of 15 or 20 people, maybe 30, and then aggregates into three or four such clusters, either on a piece of land or as a series of co-housing projects in a city, which we call a Dunbar, 
which can actually operate as a whole Game B community with Game B values, Game B decision making, and even some Game B institutions. And then any given proto B, of which we believe there'll be many, can then start multiple Dunbars in various places using the same social operating system. And again, that's another key point of our theory is high empiricism, anti-utopianism. We don't believe that you can take a prescription from a book and say, go do this and build a new world. So not only do we have a proto-B, which replicates via having new Dunbars, little communities of 150 people, but there'll be multiple proto-Bs with different constitutions. Some of them could be radically egalitarian. I've recently done a fair amount of research on kibbutzes. In fact, we'll have a scholar on kibbutzes will appear right before you on my podcast. And kibbutzes started out as radically egalitarian. And over time, many, though not all of them, have evolved to kind of a mixed capitalist egalitarian system. I expect proto-bees to do the same. And they may vary with respect to social class. Some of them may focus principally on college-educated people. I'm hoping others, if I can have my way, one of the early proto-bees will focus on working class people and the problems that they confront in our society. And so, again, we're really focused on proving our ideas at a small scale, but with theory that can replicate gradually and eventually take over the world. In fact, I wrote a paper called A Journey to Game B, which is on Medium, and it lays out the long road to Game B, which is more or less, as I described, could take 100 years, 80 years. And of course, the other issue is if we build enough of this and there's a crisis, which we think is fairly likely, there could be a short road to Game B where let's say there's a couple hundred thousand Game B people out there, and maybe 20,000 of them actually living the Game B life in proto-Bs. When the crisis comes, this might be the most well-prepared cadre to step forward to the world and say, people, look what we've been doing. Here's our evidence. It's not just bullshit and talk. This is how to organize society. And maybe at that point of crisis, there's an opportunity for a short road to Game B. So I think that's kind of the center of the Game B energy at the moment, though, because nobody owns Game B and it is radically self-organizing. There are other tendencies as well, but I think that one's probably the strongest at the moment. And in talking about institutions, I'm a great believer in institutions. I've designed, I believe, a better monetary system for the world. You can find it on YouTube, Dividend Money, Jim Rutt on YouTube, and you'll have a hour and a half talk by me on a better monetary system. And another area that I'm very interested in is liquid democracy. Because as you point out in your book, hierarchical complexity varies by person considerably, right? And really not much you can do about it. Maybe you can raise people's hierarchical complexity a bit, but not a lot. Under liquid democracy, the idea is people proxy their votes, right? I had 30 proxies on issues from education to environment to defense to healthcare. I might vote a few of them myself, but there are lots of people who know more about it than I do. And I would proxy my votes to somebody who I both had values alignment with and I perceived to be more knowledgeable than I. And that could include not-for-profits who specialize in that. For instance, I might proxy my environmental vote to the Sierra Club, which is a strong environmental organization here in the U.S. And I might proxy my defense vote to my retired Air Force colonel uncle. And in that way, we can have democracy and yet not be so constrained by the strong current limits on hierarchical complexity in individual voters. So, you know, with that, I'll turn it back over to you and maybe we can talk about verification mechanisms a little bit or you can respond to, to those thoughts. 
Yes, actually, uh, I, I do think, for instance, liquid democracy can can have a role to play in in the larger scheme of things. Uh, I discuss also in Nordic ideology. I imagine uh, that. Uh, uh, the future forms of governance that we have will be uh, perpetually self-improving in terms of institutions so that, I mean, a considerable percentage, perhaps even of the GDP, could be invested in improving governance itself so that you would have a democratization uh, ministerium uh, or, uh, or a department and uh, countries learning from each other and spreading best practices. And there are many parts of this. There is, of course, the, uh, the digitalization the digitization of um, democracy and, and governance and participation. There is participatory democracy. There is deliberative democracy. There are different forms of direct democracy, including delegative democracy like, like liquid democracy. There are um, many ways in which you can use representative democracy. There's, there are sortition mechanisms, there are uh, citizen councils and so on. And all of these, I, I, I'm not a strong proponent of any of these particular blueprints. So what I imagine is not a system that is instituted. Uh, when, whenever you start talking about deepening democracy, people would uh, often have a gut reaction and say that in quotation marks, wouldn't work. And uh, that system wouldn't work as if they're speaking about a particular democratic or a particular form of governance, which is already a blueprint and already imagined, and then you kind of institute it. That's probably not the the way things are going to happen. And uh, it would be high too, too high risk and uh, too high investment strategy. Rather, uh, there should be a plethora of many experiments um, powered, for instance, by uh, Game B groups around the world, uh, which do have uh, resources to experiment with different forms of uh, governance and self-governance um, and gathering up data, really, what works, where, under which contexts. The same would go for uh, commoning and commons-based solutions in the economy. And to a certain extent, I suppose, to cryptocurrencies and alternative currencies that we need to, on the one hand, have an empirical politics that it should be the goal of every country in the world to stay as close to reality as possible, meaning check the facts, check the best practices, check the best research and all the different opinions on it and all the different uh, angles and triangulations thereof. And today we don't have very advanced processes for that. So empirical politics on one hand, in perpetually increasing our scientific capability to together grasp the world and be collectively intelligent about it, then on the other hand, using that increased empiricism, that self-improving empiricism viewed as a critical sociological knowledge process applied to structures of governance, applied to democracy, to deepening democracy. Maybe I make this sound uh, much more status than I uh, intend. I don't imagine this is the... um, this is necessarily top-down state solution. Rather, I think 
we shouldn't ignore the political realm. It has a role to play, uh, but that role is likely to be somewhat smaller. In fact, once uh, once you set up all the the actual solutions, because the private part, the private public partnerships are there, local communities are engaged, uh, civil society is engaged in many different ways, uh, the transnational community is engaged, and um, looking then at how do you spread these ideas? You mentioned before, well, so Berlin is in Brandenburg. Brandenburg is in Germany. Germany is in the EU, and the EU can override German laws. It's true. However, it's also true that one of the most progressive governments in the world is actually the European Commission. It is considerably more inventive and progressive than the uh, governments of the individual European countries, and they're more experimental, and they uh, examine issues such as e-democracy uh, very seriously. They also look at things like alternative currencies. They also look at things like climate change, and they also look at constructive uh, solutions for for uh, migration and uh, and resolving uh, transnational issues like that. So what we want is a network or a spider web of metamodernly informed or game B type thinkers across the board who join in an open conspiracy against the modern world um, that you see the institutions of modernity, you acknowledge them for their glory and power, but at the same time you see that the whole train is going to go off a cliff and it's going to be a train wreck. And we have to then try to get off this trajectory and towards another one. So we want to empower networks and individuals across all of these sectors. And that doesn't have to be antithetical to the, the Game B communities that you, uh, that you envision and are already starting to uh, cultivate. Rather, they should be enmeshed. So I imagine an open conspiracy of metamodernists or metamodernist type people who are placed across, well, in the Silicon Valley, in, in like the heart of tech, in the heart of communication, in the heart of academia, in the UN, in key NGOs, in governance, in metropolitan governance, in local governance in uh, civic projects around the world, on local communities around the world, but who are aware of each other and share this meta map that modernity is awesome, but it's no longer our friend. We want to re-envision modernity, hence meta-modernity. We want to see modernity from above and beyond, as it were, and redesign it and not just follow its culture. We want to be creators of its culture. Uh, so moder modern life and modernity and the Enlightenment taught us to study nature, to reshape nature according to human, um, human goals, human rationality, and so forth. But all of those goals and all that rationality is still subject to human culture, which we are not redesigning and recreating which creates the, a, a third pillar in my thinking, which is politics of narrative or politics of theory or politics of culture, uh, meaning that 
together, we should have a kind of meta politics, a kind of politics that envisions which narratives are defended and uh, and promulgated out there in the world and how we make sense of the world. So we should be discussing how we view reality. We should be creating an open conspiracy to deepen democracy and enrich governance and empower governance around the world, which oftentimes means empowering bottom-up processes, or most of the time, that's what it means. At the same time, doing this with the best possible empirical processes and improving upon those empirical processes themselves, seeing that empiricism is not an either-or, it's an impossible destination that we always have to try to go towards, right? That empiricism is the most difficult thing in the world, really. Yeah, I think we have a lot of agreement there in particular in the Game B world, at least the degree that I speak for it. And I can keep in mind, there are many people that say different things about Game B, that radical empiricism must be the order of the day, that the nightmares of the 20th century came from people who had the answers in a book, you know, the Nazis and the Marxist-Leninists. And that's not the way reality works. You know, one of the things I've been spending the last 20 years doing is learning about complexity science, for instance. And the biggest takeaways from complexity science I describe as epistemic modesty, how little we can actually predict what will happen when we make significant changes to a complex system like a society. So anyone who thinks they have the answer, whether it's socialism or proprietarianism, one thing you can count on is that they're wrong. Rather, we can take some principles, as you suggest, you know, more democracy and, you know, preserving localism and experiment, try things. And if they don't work beyond intellectually honest and say, this didn't work, let's try something else. You know, in my writings on liquid democracy, for instance, I warn every, in every essay, this is an interesting idea, but it has not been tried at scale. It may have a huge flaw. I can't see. So let's try it at the municipal level first, right? In a small city of 25,000 people. It turns out to be a shit show and we can't diagnose a way to fix the shit show. Let's throw it away and come up with something else. I think that's tremendously important. And as you mentioned, these different levels brings up another bit of language we, we sometimes use in the game B world, which is that these levels of governance essentially should be fractal, that they should be self-similar, that they have similar values and similar institutions, but they should operate at all kinds of different scales. You know, these same principles can be applied from a community of 50 people on up to the global world, though, of course, with additions and modifications. But we should, we should think about these things as operating eventually at all scales. So I suppose the key question for let's move on to what do we actually do right now? Let's agree we, we have a, a more or less close enough agreement on the world, political metamodernism, game B, don't agree on every detail, but are moving in the same direction. And I'd also call out other folks who I've run across lately who I would describe as also on a similar mission. The peer-to-peer folks, Michelle Bowens and his people, regenerative ecology, Daniel Christian Wall, Joe Brewer, some of those folks, system change by doing people. You know, a number of people in California, Zebra United, Architects of the Future, and a number of these people thinking about the same kinds of things that you and I are with a similar heart and a similar head, but with different emphases. And one of the things that it strikes me that would be useful to do is to acknowledge that there are numerous ways to head towards what comes next and to find some way for us to more formally interact with each other. 
and intercommunicate and maintain our own points of view, but agree upon what we agree upon. In fact, I've labeled this opportunity the Big Change Coalition. It strikes me that that might be a move that could be quite powerful that could be done right now. Yes, uh, so maybe some kind of world conference for this might uh, might be a, a good step um, where um, people become acquainted uh, across these networks and across these uh, different ideas. And basically, it, in, in uh, one, one of the key tenets of metamodernism is perspective taking and uh, and the ability to coordinate many perspectives in a creative manner, not just uh, critiquing and deconstructing, but also reconstructing. And I think this is a general um, sentiment and uh, impetus that a lot of uh, like-minded people share. So what you're doing with a podcast is important, of course, uh, but we could bring people closer together, I guess. There are already many network meetings. Uh, so one of the most important challenges to those, though, are, uh, are, is this bottleneck challenge that we, uh, we don't seem to successfully imbue each other's perspectives because they're too complex, basically. And uh, each of us is only an individual person. We have a few key insights each. A smart person is lucky in their life if they have a few strokes of genius and a few uh, theories and uh, perspectives of their own. And we need a lot of those things to be uh, coordinated. So somehow we should get that conversation going and not just a conversation, but we should get constructive projects going around these things. But to do that, I think, again, we need to rethink the sense-making process through which this is organized. So just just bringing all of these smart and big-hearted people to the to the same place might actually not work. We we would then we would first have to invent the best possible way of creating resonance and shared understanding and shared emergence. Um, and emerge is of course a, a common thread. A lot of people see what emerges, want to kick back and listen in and uh, stimulate these meetings and imagine something fantastic will emerge. And it feels like that. It feels like just around the corner, something awesome is going to emerge, uh, something great uh, that will affect and change the world. Uh, I'm a little bit less optimistic. I think we need to be more creative in terms of how do we guide this emergence? Uh, what is the right process of knowledge, sharing, of communication, of shared understanding, of decision-making in these uh, varied projects and across them, right? Yeah, I sense we lack a kind of uh, a, a social institutional invention for gathering all of these diverse but aligned forces and somehow coordinating all of these efforts, it would still argue towards uh, key points in the world, pressure points where I, I imagine something like, let's say the, the, the world right now is having a bit of a switching metaphors. It's not having schizophrenia. We're having a bit of a uh, epileptic seizure. 
and the, the world map is blinking with all sorts of dramatic events and potentials. And we chase after each one of them and comment upon them and, and try to understand them. And then the next thing happens. It's the COVID crisis. It's the Black Lives Matter movement. It's the U.S. election. All of these different things, right? Somehow, uh, we should be not be caught up in the epileptic seizure ourselves. We should somehow see this blinking for what it is and uh, that there are going to be a lot of dramatic events and there are going to be a lot of strategic opportunities for really affecting the trajectory of the world. And we should be able to coordinate deeply and strategically around them. Now, how do we get there? Just gathering everyone under the same roof uh, for uh, for shaking hands and uh, and giving half hour presentations would probably not cut it. We would need some kind of profound sense making process that is more akin to the group of five and the group of fifteen that you were speaking about. Interesting. I would one hundred percent agree. I like the framing, and in fact, you know, just sort of serendipitously. My early thinking about this big change coalition has been along those lines. Interestingly, I've drafted one other person who resonated with the idea, and we're going to attempt to build a draft core. Because one of the ideas I think is very important is coherent pluralism. The two words are somewhat contradictory, but I think hold them both in your head simultaneously. It's hugely important to make this work, is that we must be truly honoring the idea of pluralism that you know, the, these different points of view are perhaps all right, or at least are worth pursuing in their own rights, even where they contradict each other. And that's okay. On the other hand, for this thing to be meaningful, there has to be some coherence. And one of the ones me and this other person just plopped down in, in a couple of emails exchanges is, you know, no first degree racists, for instance, right? Or no Nazis, if you want to put it in more common term. And we think we can probably come up with a couple of dozen things that are at least candidates for this potential group to form around. And I think it'd be a great idea to have a formal sense-making process that brings potential candidates to the Big Change Coalition into a way to interoperate with each other to discuss what should be the coherent core to, by some consensus process and, if necessary, voting process, but consensus would be better, to you know, take some of these candidates, throw them out, modify them, add some new ones. And before we have this world conference, unfortunately, it probably has to be virtual in the current world, that there is some hands being held across a group of entities that says, yes, this is our coherence. It's relatively small. It leaves a lot of room for our pluralistic ways of addressing what we see that needs to be done. But we all at least agree on a small common core. And so I think that fits in nicely with the before part. The part that I think needs some work, and I think it's very good for you to point this out, is that we also have to have an after-meeting process to actually turn this into action. How can there be ongoing sense-making across these groups and horizontal information sharing? In the Game B world, we call it X in a box, so kind of an awkward term. But the idea is if someone finds something that works, they have a duty to document it and share it horizontally and give it to the world for other people to use. And if all these different groups that are on their pluralistic missions, though driven by a coherent core, individually discover things that work, having a high fidelity communications platform so that people could look to it to see what does work 
then indeed those X in the boxes could evolve and people take them and modify them. And then there's, say, liquid democracy 1.0. Yeah, it's been found to work in a proto-V in Virginia, but it had these little issues, right? So we're tweaking it. Somebody else tries a variant on it, changes a couple of things and said, this works better, right? And this form of horizontal transmission of capability could be really important in kind of the after meetings and ongoing kind of mechanism. The other idea, which I think I'm trying to put forth as some of the glue around this, and again, it's a little bit contradictory, but that's all right. We can hold all these in our head, is that this coherence is going to be relatively small. It has to be to get a large number of people to buy into it. And so we all have to be willing to have the cultural meta value of alignment beyond agreement, meaning that we all acknowledge we're on the same side, even if we fundamentally disagree about some tactic or technique that one of us takes. And that in human history has shown themselves to be very difficult. The religious wars are, are quite informative of that. You know, people slaughter each other by the millions over the most what seemingly trivial religious issues. So anyway, there's some reaction to your thought that sense-making, some process to bring these groups together, it's got to be wrapped in sense-making both before and after. Yeah, I think actually um, I'd I'd like to propose something a little bit bolder actually um, that the coherence um, should be based around goal formulations. And uh, we should have um, some kind of membership and constitution in which the key goals are written down. Um, And then whatever is argued, whatever is proposed to the group as a project, as a perspective, as an alliance should be coherent with those goals. So uh, I, I would argue that uh, a a goal that is of utmost importance is that we have to put sense-making processes and higher truthfulness of the political processes, of communication processes, making society more scientific in a profound sense, but also more existentially mature, uh, should be our core goals. Then we can argue about what that means in practice. Um, But uh, some kind of directionality, some kind of transcendent goal is very important um, for it not to be discussion club. Not only would I say that the transcendent goal should be an inspiring idea on paper through which we convene and then uh, try to materialize different realities in in our meetings and our collisions, we should also ritualize somehow, meaning that there should be uh, rituals of greeting, rituals of recognition. There should be rituals of conflict resolution. There should be rituals for different realities being uh, being. Uh, different perspectives uh, should somehow be honored. And this is not super easy, but it's at the same time not inconceivable or not impossible. 
Religions have been invented in the past uh, for less complex uh, problems than these. Uh, but what we're looking for then is in a very secular sense now and a very uh, abstracted sense, uh, a kind of liturgy or a kind of ritual culture that can carry all of these complex, um, diverse minds and experiences. Some go deep in the psychedelic direction, some go deep in the existential spiritual direction, some go deep in the ecological and animal rights direction, some go deep in the uh, nitty-gritty of democratic processes, some go deep into into the intricacies of communication and uh, and startups and entrepreneurship of different kinds. We need somehow to be able to house all of these um, in one energy container where people still feel the coherence where and we feel it strongly. So we feel drawn to it. And uh, this, I would like to say also uh, as a word of warning, is what our friends, the fra- fascists, are looking for, uh, the, the meta-right. But they imagine uh, this structure or this transcendence to be taken from, uh, from the traditional religions or uh, some kind of cathedral building or some kind of totalitarianism or some kind of one will uh, that asserts itself. Um, and some kind of profound unity. And we're not looking for unity. We're looking for, as you say, a pluriverse, uh, a coherent pluriverse, or a complex ontological object is a term I like. It, or, yeah, you, you said it better. You said, uh, uh, what was the term you used, Jim? Coherent pluralism. Coherent pluralism, yes. So we should create, as it were, a digital temple of coherent pluralism uh, where these, I mean, on a very visceral level, these energies are directed. And I think that is something that we really need to be doing now. Uh, I see all of these geniuses out there, and I see all of these fantastic ideas and projects, but I see that the coherence is too small. I also see that a lot of people go crazy along the way because uh, because there is no container or structure which uh, corresponds to a temple to contain it. And what we get instead then is that people uh, run off on these uh, on these fascist experiments because they long so much for this transcendence, for this oneness and unity. Ah, yeah, very a lot of very good points there, which I am 100% in agreement with, I believe. Let me first react to rituals. I think that is really important because, again, our world is so complex relative to our own hierarchical complexity that simplification and repetition actually help us deal with the complexity of the world, right? Not having to figure out de novo how to deal with every situation. And it reminds me that in the original Game B, the 2013 version, we actually had a few little rituals. One was we referred to each other as peers, you know, kind of analogous to the Soviets and their comrades thing, right? And we thought that was really important because we were anti-hierarchy, radically decentralized. We are all peers. Let's just call ourselves peers. We should go back to doing that. I don't know why, why we did The other one that we had, I don't think we ever actually codified it, but I would call it explicit and excessive politeness, right? We never, ever until this started to fail, and then the group fell apart, were we anything other than with very polite with each other, right? 
and excessively so, almost like a Frenchman at court in Louis XIV's day or something, right? We would very much defer to the other person. We would apologize very easily and quickly should we give offense, etc. And kind of a stylized, explicit politesse might be an interesting ritual as an example that could help push away the known problems of dealing with people, particularly in a non-face-to-face fashion. But anyway, certainly it's worth some serious thought of what those rituals would be, right? That could be a process to think about, and propose, and either adopt by consensus or reject or modify possible rituals as part of this formation process. I like it. I think it's neat. But then the other one, which is something close as a goal formation, at least as an intermediate goal, sense-making and truthfulness, I think is really good. In fact, the two bases of Game B, which came from a conversation Jordan Hall and I had at the Santa Fe Institute in 2008, were honesty and good faith. And we've always said that Game B has to be a world in which honesty and good faith is a winning strategy and not the sucker strategy that it is in late modernity and not far from sense-making and truthfulness. And I think somewhere in that space, we can find a goal formulation that a fair number of people would agree to. So so I think that's good. Hmm. And of course, people are going to have different ideas about what truthfulness means. But as you said, with the politeness part, uh, that if, if we can show it, don't tell it. If we can create a culture around it, then perhaps we can contain more of this energy. Um, and I mean, the, the energy is tremendous, really. Uh, and, and it's part of why the world is flipping out so much. Uh, people are having all of these profound spiritual experiences. People are having all of these uh, intellectual awakenings. People are waking up to uh, systems uh, perspectives, uh, cross-disciplinary perspectives. People are uh, trashing their old uh, worldviews. Uh, they're getting into entirely new networks of people. Um, and uh, at the same time, uh, you see a lot of these people not knowing what to do with with all of these things that they access often through through the web, and being unable to uh, to create something in their own lives around it. And to be able to create something in our own life, uh, we often need companionship. Then, so the, if we can increase uh, the amount of friendship between. Of what I would loosely term all the metamodernists out in the world, the the key, uh, the key element would be a kind of camaraderie or friendship, and the alliance would be against the modern world, but not now with a very strong caveat, not the integral traditionalists or the transcendental fascists who who want to build uh, cathedrals rather than skyscrapers again and to dismantle democracy and stuff like that but rather um, a conspiracy against the modern world, but a call not from the past, not a blast from the past, but a blast from the future. And uh, somehow placing ourselves in a future protopian vision, uh, being in that transcendental space, being in, we are inventors of the world. We are inventors of culture. Uh, we are going to invent rituals with which we can uh, with which we can convene as not just intellects, not just dry intellects, but as whole human beings. And there are, there are four different parts of this, uh, 
um, creative class, which I feel is the uh, is a very instrumental to uh, the metamodernist movement, and this class has yet to wake up to its own uh, to its own coherence because it's so diverse. But there are deep uh, there are deep structural issues which uh, connect its members, and I, I've I've said this before. It's a triple age population. It's the hippies, people who are good at uh, uh, inner development, spirituality, shamanism, and all the rest of it, and uh, maybe taking uh, indigenous perspectives. There are the hackers, who uh, the Silicon Valley types, who can uh, understand and reinvent information and its flows. There are the hipsters, more my own type, who are uh, good at understanding culture and uh, and philosophy and seeing uh, how how new symbols and new meanings can be uh, can be created in the world and a new code can be created to to run our culture and then there are there's the fourth age which uh, wasn't in the, uh, the listening society it has been added later the hermetics the people who are more towards the occult side arguably perhaps the most dangerous group because they love all of these symbols and they love all of these rituals so much and they look so so deeply for the meaning in these that they can sometimes fall into traps of uh, well unhealthy occultism or even uh, even far right stuff um, but the hermetics are the experts on creating these new games on these new rit- rituals so we somehow need to uh, draw on all of these four competencies, uh, which really, they can't be situated within one person because each of them takes so much talent and so much personality and so much of your uh, core being to develop that people have these different specialties. And yet together, they are all part of, well, not they, they don't fit in in modern society. Um, they have a, a specific class interest, which is transnational, and uh, it doesn't like the top-down governance structures. They don't fit in the labor markets. They often, often fall down in precarious positions, uh, flip out for reasons uh, that have. They, they often have ADHD and ADD, sometimes uh, uh, high-functioning autism. Uh, so somehow. Uh, the, the temple I imagine uh, for for Game B, uh, the virtual temple, which has this transcendent goal, has to draw all of these four groups and let these energies intermingle. And then I think actually the solutions are likely to come because all of these people are talented and inventive and already connected. And with more proper support, they're likely to be more successful in society at large, meaning, well, they can get into uh, politics if that's what they want with the support of their like-minded people. Uh, And a very, very important part of this is to set up a, a really robust structure to protect the mental health of these groups. Because what we're seeing also is that they keep flipping out. Um, And, and here we are, we're trying to save the world. We're chasing each other on the web, uh, trying to communicate, trying to understand each other. And climate change is ongoing. Uh, political decay is ongoing. Democracy is on demise. Uh, Chinese autocracy is uh, on the rise. Digital autocracy is on the rise. 
um, troll factories are controlling the <laughs> the public discourse. Uh, the media has a really hard time making sense of all of this using all the old uh, uh, paradigms to to interpret it. So I think just the fact if we could do one thing, if we could get a, a group of ten thousand of the four. Uh, quadruple age population from around the world to really know each other in in uh, groups of 150, we would have a lot of the situated projects that I imagine either way, right? Yeah, I love it. You know, there's a lot to it. As, as you were saying that, you had the hermetics. I thought that was very interesting because one of the groups that we're now catalyzing in game B, we call them the archetype narrative people. Yeah, yeah, that works t- too. I like ages, right? So, so it's going to be quadruple age, right? Yeah, yeah. And I said, yeah, we certainly got hippies, certainly got hackers, we certainly have hipsters, and and we are adding in the hermetics. It's kind of an interesting, maybe overloaded term, but for it makes another nice age. Why not, right? And again, I think this is one of the reasons there's this libido within Game B right now to actually produce groups on the ground is the concern you put in about mental health right? That people are just finding it stressful as fuck to have these insights about the world, how deeply screwed we are. And yet there is a way forward and yet we're not taking it. And to do this as one person living in your mother's basement in Bavaria, as one particular person I know is, is very bad for their mental health, right? And if they were to live in a community of somewhere between 30 and 150 people, that's well populated with the four H's plus some other skill sets and they have meals together in common and they have conviviality parties on a regular basis. They sing and dance together. You know, this could by itself fundamentally upregulate people's mental health. We're not designed to be alone. You know, we are acculturated creatures and those few of us who started to break free of the culture that we're embedded in, you know, experience a fair amount of stress from that. And some people can handle it and some people can't. And so building communities on the ground in which people are embedded in a like-minded proto-culture strikes me as I can see why there's such demand for that right now. Hmm. And so I really like what you said before about uh, politeness. And I I think, you know, on um, on the Metamodernist uh, forum, we only really have two rules and it's um, kindness and respect and don't spam. And that's it. But then uh, later on, uh, I've added uh, inofficial ones, and it's no UFOs, no uh, magic, and no Nazis. Those are kind of an immune system um, because, hey, openness uh, has a cost, and there's you kind of have to pay a certain uh, certain cost to uh, to imbue new information, to respond, and so on. And we have to put some limits on it. So uh, to make this uh, filter an open one, but an effective one, so that uh, perspectives are drawn in widely, and but still uh, s- still don't devolve, right? So th- these are these are perhaps necessary at this point. Other than that, there are certain norms that I think should be very important. For instance, um, there are rituals for many things in our societies, but there's not a real ritual for honoring when somebody changes their mind. Rather, we tend to lose prestige when we do. 
So somehow this this needs to be turned on its head. It should be an honorable thing to do to listen in, take up somebody else's perspective and argument, and change one's position. It doesn't mean uh, it doesn't mean being a pushover or anything like that. It just means that we get stuck in all of these discussions, which are not necessarily uh, conducive to creative solutions or to mental health for that matter, or to good relationships and friendships. Um, But uh, if we had a norm, a strong norm, which says it's okay to change your opinion and you're expected to do so fairly often, then we could evolve together more quickly, really, and and, uh, coordinate on a deeper level. Yeah, we're explorers, right? And explorers expect to learn new things, right? I absolutely agree. That's an excellent one. And of course, this kind of weirdo thing called cancel culture is exactly an opposite of that, right? So they, they hang somebody from the lamppost because of something they said in 1985, right? That's ridiculous. People aren't who they were in 1985. You know, the world has changed a lot. And so honoring the fact that we can can and do and should change over time, I like that a lot as kind of a meta ritual for this what comes next movement. Well, I think we're getting kind of long here on time, as we always do. We always have such good conversations. It's hard to keep them within the bounds of an hour and a half podcast. But I think this has been an exceptionally rich and fruitful discussion. I hope that we can continue to maybe take some active steps to bring these things into being afterwards. Yeah, I think we have a good plan to take over the world. So uh, we should definitely, I mean, let's, let's see what, what people, how people respond to it uh, and see if this, uh, our formulations here speak to people. And um, maybe if we have a critical mass of people who would like to get something like this afloat, uh, a, a very intentional community of truth-seeking, which is an open conspiracy against the modern world, which tries to bring us to a new equilibrium of, uh, of more sustainable development and more inner development and relational development, then, hey, uh, I, I think we can go get buried with satisfaction, right? Because then we would have taken uh, a good meta step towards this new world we want to see. Production services and audio editing by Jared Janes Consulting. Music by Tom Muller at modernspacemusic.com.